Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Dr. Haken, you've written much and you've talked a lot about uh, friendship within your writings and uh, lectures and these things. Could you tell us more about how friendship is viewed, say, in the ancient world? Yes. Um, this uh, perspective or reflection on friendship uh, really kind of has a lot of personal overtones for me. Friendship has always been a significant element of my life, and I've thought a lot about it over the years. And uh, by thinking about it, uh, and not just thinking about, you know, who are my friends, et cetera, et cetera, but what does friendship mean? What are the responsibilities of friendship or the obligations of friendship? Uh, I'm really part uh, of a tr long tradition that goes all the way back to the uh, Greek and Roman era, as well as the biblical days. Um, the Greeks and Romans were very conscious of the importance of affection, the, the kind of affection that we call friendship as being foundational to being human. Um, friendship was for them more than simply uh, a means to another end, such as subsistence or security or social advancement, which it has been. Uh, the way friendship has been used down through the years, it's, it's a way of securing you know, things that I need to live, um, it's a way of providing security, say, for myself and my family. It's a way a lot of people use it. Uh, they use friends as a vehicle for social advancement. So I'm really not interested in those sorts of things, which do not see friendship as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. But I'm interested in friendship as foundational to being human, as kind of a understanding of what it means to be, to be involved in human flourishing. And so if you go back to the kind of fountainhead of Western culture, uh, you have two really kind of two main traditions. You have the Bible, um, which obviously comes out of a Middle Eastern context, but uh, you also have uh, Greek, Greek literature, uh, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And uh, I'm not going to get into a discussion here at this point about, you know, the way in which our contemporary culture is trying to divorce itself from the roots of Western civilization. Uh, I mean, like it or not, at the fountainhead of, of intellectual reflection in Western thought is the Bible and is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And one of the major themes of the Iliad is friendship. In fact, the, the book starts with the anger of, uh, of um, Achilles, uh, which gets uh, that that anger leads to a, a situation where his closest friend, Patroclus, is eventually killed by his enemy, Hector, uh, the Trojan warrior. And at one point in, uh, it's in book 18, Achilles exclaims this, that Patroclus, quote, was the man whom I revered beyond all my companions as equal to my own life. And it was Achilles' undying love for his friend, Patroclus, that fuels his anger and desire to avenge Patroclus' death by slaying his killer, Hector. And that's the... You know, that's, a, that's just very central to the whole story of the Iliad um, and this, this friendship between Achilles and Patroclus. 
Um, friendship is so important to the Greeks that uh, Plato, um, many years later, after uh, Homer, uh, devotes an entire book, the Lysis, to the topic of friendship, as well as substantial portions of two other books, the Phaedrus and the Symposium, uh, to discuss what is friendship and uh, how does it develop, uh, how does it flourish, how does it end sometimes. Aristotle, who's the other leading thinker of the classical Greek period, uh, also considers the topic of friendship significant enough to ha have a discussion of it occupy two of the ten books of the Nicomachean Ethics, which is really quite intriguing. Here's a, a book on a kind of an ethical handbook, and a fifth of the book is devoted to the topic of friendship. Um, I took ethics in uh, university. The topic never came up. Um, a variety of other things did, uh, but friendship didn't, which uh, Aristotle would have viewed as a sig significant lacuna. So for the ancient Greeks and the Romans who love Greek culture and really kind of take it over, uh, friendship formed one of the highest ideals of human life. So what does the Bible say about friendship? Uh, the Bible's not as systematic in its discussion of friendship as, say, Plato or Aristotle. But um, it does have marvelous illustrations of what a good friendship looks like. For instance, the friendship of Ruth and Naomi, which is an important friendship because it crosses generations. Um, it's not just two people of the same generational bracket, but here is an older woman and a younger woman. Um, or David and Jonathan. Um, in fact, the words that I cited from um, uh, Homer's uh, Iliad, the, the cry of Achilles of anguish uh, after, after his friend Patroclus has been killed, um, he, he loved him as his own life. Well, th that, that's what you find um, with, um, in 1 Samuel, um, the pledge of Jonathan. Uh, to, to David and vice versa, the covenant they make between each other. And then uh, David's affirmation after the death of Jonathan that his love was surpassed that of a love of a woman. And um, given our climate today, it's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, tempting to those who would affirm um, homosexual and homoerotic relationships as normal to see that going on here, but that's a complete misunderstanding of the way in which uh, the ancients viewed friendship, uh, at least the ancients in the scriptures. There are also nuggets of advice about keeping friends and uh, having friends um, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, 17, for instance, a, fr a true friend loves at all times. Uh, Proverbs 18, 24, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And so you have illustrations of friendship, but you also have these kind of nuggets of wisdom about how to, to maintain friendships, uh, how to develop friendships, what do friendships look like. And uh, the Bible uses two very significant images in its representation of friendship. Uh, the first is the literal idea of the knitting together of two souls. Uh, so Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, embedded in a passage that is telling you what to do if a relative tries to lead you astray into idolatry, or even a friend um, 
and you need to slay them. But it's it's the it's the way in which a friend is described in Deuteronomy thirteen six. Uh, the friend is described as one who is as your own soul, and that is one who is whose soul is knit to yours, who is a companion of your innermost thoughts and feelings. Uh, the same idea, the very same words reoccur in First Samuel eighteen one, where it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And so what, is, what does friendship mean in this, this kind of image? Well, it involves intimacy, uh, involves loyalty, um, involves a strong emotional attachment. The second image that the Bible uses to represent friendship is the face-to-face -face encounter. And uh, you find this in Exodus 33:11, where it, it, we read that Moses, God would talk to Moses in the tabernacle, Quote, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So not only is friendship entailing the knitting together of souls, but it also entails speaking to one another face to face. Um, this implies conversation. It implies a sharing of confidences. It implies a meeting of minds and goals and direction. It also Im Im implies the willingness to be transparent and to allow another person to speak into your life and to correct you. So there's not only the intimacy of the knitting of two souls together and the love that binds you together with another person, a friend, but it's also the willingness to allow somebody else to speak into your life and tell you you're wrong um, or commend you. And I think a proverb that really kind of captures this idea of speaking face to face is Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And that is uh, the, the, the way in which iron is um, made sharp is by the, the clashing together of, of metal upon metal. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a it's somewhat rugged image of, of friendship, but it speaks of the candor and transparency that marks a true friendship. Is there anything in the New Testament that talks about friendship? Yeah, probably the, the there are a number of passages uh, that uh, you could appeal to from uh, the Gospel of John. You know, Jesus' statements to the effect that, you know, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And in fact, in the Johannine letters, uh, the idea of the word friends becomes a word for disciples. But probably the one of the great friendships, I think, of the New Testament is that of Paul and Timothy. And um, one of the things I think that is a, a misreading of Paul is you people tend to get the idea that he's kind of a lone ranger, although even the lone ranger <laughs> had a friend, Tonto. Um, but... Uh, the idea is that the Paul's out there pioneering uh, a man without companions. But in fact, the opposite is true. Um, he's uh, a man who is never seen without companions. Uh, the lexicographer the, in the 18th century, Samuel Johnson, once said of a man that he knew quite well, Sir John Hawkins, that, quote, he was a most unclubbable man. Unclubbable, uh, which is uh, a word that Johnson invented. He he, after all, wrote the first standard English dictionary. So I guess if you do that, you've got the privilege of inventing your own words. 
and unclubbable was one of the words he invented. And he might have been able to say that of uh, this guy, Sir John Hawkins, uh, but you could never say that of Paul. In fact, uh, he was a most clubbable individual. And probably of all his friends, the most, uh, the closest would have been Timothy. And here again, just like Ruth and Naomi, you've got a uh, intergenerational friendship. You've got a man who is, uh, when he meets uh, Timothy, he's probably in his mid to late 40s. And Timothy is in his late teens. Um, maybe Paul was in his early 40s. Um, I tend to think Paul was born around the same time as Christ. So he meets Timothy in the late 40s. Um, and uh, Timothy joins the Pauline circle, this kind of apostolic band that walked with Paul, the Roman highways and Roman roads, uh, planting churches, preaching the gospel. And um, he would have met Paul around 48 or 49. And the circumstances are intriguing. Paul was in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, typically, Paul, in the sense of going to a large urban center, preaching the gospel, planting a church, he hoped, and then that church would reach out to smaller towns. But in this case, there was a, a rough reception, and Paul's beaten up, left for dead outside the city. And uh, instead of the church reaching the smaller towns surrounding the city, Paul does that. And he goes to two towns, uh, really kind of little out-of-the-way places, Lystra and Derby. And that's where he meets Timothy. And you can see God's hand in this. Uh, because Paul normally didn't go to small towns. He only went to big towns. Corinth, Ephesus, um, Philippi, etc. And um, Timothy joins the apostolic band. And it's quite clear that as uh, Timothy walks with the Apostle Paul, he begins to embrace Paul's um, thinking. There's an intriguing verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, where Paul says, um, bad company corrupts good morals. Well, you could also say it this way, good company promotes good morals, or good company promotes good habits. And one of the things that is very important about friendship, and I think a lot of young people don't realize this, is that they will shape you. They shape your mind. You spend time with friends. And friendship is an important issue for younger people and should be for all ages, I think. But we don't take time to think about it. And we don't give advice to younger people about it always. And um, good company, good friends, uh, has they rub off on you. And what you want are friends who will make it difficult for you to sin. Um, Morris Roberts puts it this way. Our best friends are those whose company makes us most afraid to sin. Uh, people said that about Robert Murray McShane, that spending time with him, you wanted to be a holy person. And I think this is what happens with Timothy. The Paul's, Paul's goal in life, which he describes in, um, in the pastoral epistles, um, uh, where he did, you know, he talks about you in Second Timothy chapter three. You, you've known my doctrine. You know my teaching. You, you know my purpose in life. You know what makes me tick. Uh, you've seen me suffer for the gospel, and I, the the mentoring of Timothy by Paul, is not just teaching. It's it's living with him. And so in uh, 
Philippians, for instance, Philippians chapter 2, 19 to 22, um, you have a very clear illustration of, of how Paul uh, appreciated the friendship with Timothy. Um, the Philippian church was experiencing disunity, and um, explicitly Paul mentions in chapter 4, two women who are working in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, urges them to be like-minded in the Lord. And then in chapter 2, earlier, he had devoted a whole section to resolving any disunity in the church. And he began by urging the Philippians to be like-minded. Um, you need to have the same love, being all, be of one accord, um, have the same mind. Look out not only for your own interests, but those of others. And uh, in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2, he uses the very familiar illustration of uh, Jesus. This is how Jesus lived. Um, he made himself of no reputation. He didn't think about his own concerns, but ours. But he not only gives Jesus as, an, as, a, as a model, but he also gives Timothy as a model. It's really very striking. If you look at the structure of chapter 2, um, he outlines the work of Jesus as a model of how we should be like-minded. And um, he then turns to Timothy. I trust in the Lord Jesus, he says, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may be encouraged when I know your state. I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. All seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character. But as a son with his father, he served me with the, served with me in the gospel. And um, I think one of the things that we as evangelicals who've lived with decades, centuries of vociferousness, you know, churches splitting and the lack of Christian unity, we, we just don't see how important it is and how it undergirds so much in the New Testament. And what Paul loves about Timothy is that Timothy is a man like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he can send him to, to, to Philippi quite, con quite confident that Timothy will seek not what he wants or not what will serve his interests, but what will serve the interests of the Philippians and also the interests of Christ. In other words, Timothy... After spending time with Paul, and Philippians is written somewhere around 60, so it's been a decade now. Uh, Paul's concern for the unity of the church, Paul's concern for the growth of Christians has rubbed off on Timothy. And uh, the final record that you find of this friendship is in 2 Timothy, which is written weeks, at most a few months before his death, Paul's death by a Roman executioner. Paul's in prison, an obscure prison in Rome. And Timothy is in, is in Ephesus, which is at least a week's travel by sea, much longer by land. And somewhere 66, 67, in the late summer of one of those two years, um, Paul writes the letter to Timothy to, in Ephesus. Um, it's a very personal letter. He remembers how when they were last together, uh, Timothy broke down publicly and wept. First Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, 
And um, again, this is something, and I'm not, this, this can't be created or conjured up, but it's something that does not mark contemporary men. Men don't do this. Um, we've actually, because we're actually culturally trained not to. And it's not, it's viewed as something women do. Men don't do it. And that's all, to be honest, it's all Victorian rubbish. And uh, we've been shaped by the Victorians more deeply than we know. And if you go back into the 18th century, uh, Whitfield's crying all the time. And I, I don't think it's fake. I think it's just, he, he's moved by pathos and by empathy and by, by just pity for human beings. But to go back to Paul, and Paul begins this way, begins, it's a very personal letter. Um, you know, we call it a pastoral letter, but it's written Timothy, very much so. Um, and um, he encourages Timothy to hold fast to the gospel, to pursue godliness, uh, to fulfill his ministry. And then in um, 2 Timothy 4, what we call 2 Timothy 4, um, he begins to tell Timothy about his death, his impending death. And um, verse 9, uh, he says, um, make every effort to come to me soon. And he, just, he doesn't leave it there, but uh, later in the, ver in the book, verse 21, he's, he repeats this, the statement, make every effort to come before winter. Now, winter in the Mediterranean world began in November, mid-November, and would run to March. And in winter, you didn't sail the Mediterranean. If you did, you're foolish. And in fact, you have a story about that in Acts 27, if you remember the, the ship that Paul was being transported to Rome on as a prisoner in that occasion. The owner decided, or the captain decided, he was going to risk sailing the Mediterranean in the winter months. And it ended up, ended up in disaster for the ship. And so you don't sail... Ships normally didn't sail them in the winter months. And so Paul is probably writing this at the end of the summer, very early fall. The letter would reach Timothy sometime maybe in September. And what he's really urging Timothy to do is you need to put things in order there. And you need to get a boat. And if you don't get it, if you don't get it before winter, you won't get here before I'm dead. And what's striking to me is this, is that here's a man who, he actually says, the Lord stood by me when he was uh, in front of Roman officials for the preliminary hearing to determine whether or not there was enough evidence to take Paul to trial. We do the same. And the Lord stood by me and rescued me from the mouth of the lion, he said, which might be an allusion to the Roman Imperium. Um, maybe Satan, but whatever. And so... Surely you think, well, he, you know, here's a man who's seen the risen, risen Christ. What, what does he need Timothy for? And I, I saw this quite a number of years ago. Why, why, why is he asking? Why is he pleading with him? Make sure you get on a boat before winter. If you don't, the understanding would be you, you, you may get here and I'll be dead. By the time spring comes, I'll have died and I will not see you. And I, I think it just bespeaks the, 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 the deep bonds of friendship. Uh, between these two men and we don't have as I said earlier we don't have these long essays uh, on friendship in the Bible that you find in Plato or Aristotle 
But instead, instead of the philosophical reflection on friendship, you have the hardcore, this is what friendship looks like in the hurly-burly of life. And I think that's very valuable. And I think it's something that we need to really reflect on in our day. Um, I, I do feel that we, um, well, we, we, we've cheapened friendship. You know, we talk about Facebook friends. And uh, I think we've lost, we've lost some of the Bible, biblical understanding of friendship, which informed a lot of thinking about friendship and actions of friendships down through the, the centuries. So in a society and culture, both in the church and outside of the church, where we segregate age, so you see that everywhere. You don't, you don't often see young men with old men, old women with young women. How does one go about developing a Christian friendship with someone who is older in the faith? Well, I, I, I do think the onus lies on the older, older people. I think older men and women need to cultivate friendship with younger younger men and women they need to take that step i don't think it's always i don't think it's always easy for younger younger men and women to take the step of trying to cultivate a friendship younger women with the older women and uh, younger men with older men um i think they need to take that step uh the older the my generation needs to take the step of building friendships and relationships of younger people and i i think that part of the i think that one of the ways in which worldliness has crept into the church is my generation has accepted, you know, young people don't want to talk to us. You know, they, 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 we can't build these friendships. Well, we're just wrong. We're just very wrong. Um, I think we have an added problem too, which has emerged since the 19th century uh, is uh, Freud who sexualized absolutely everything. And sex, sex has permeated our entire culture. And so Building friendships uh, with a, uh, a, a woman with an old, an, another woman and a man with a man, but especially men, uh, I think there's this latent fear of being thought to be homosexual. And um, um, that's, a, that's a, an added problem for us. And I, I don't, I'm not sure how to, to, to overcome that. Um, it, it just permeates the air, everything we do, um, you know, um, entertainment seems to be that the, the height of human fulfillment is uh, sexual activity. And again, biblically, this is just wrong. Uh, the, most, the most fulfilled human being in the scriptures is our Lord Jesus Christ, who never had an intimate sexual moment with another human being but he is the most fulfilled person. He's the model of human fulfillment. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.